Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 59th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we continue our week of discussions about cascading and compound disasters and the complex world of disaster preparedness with Arnold Howitt and Stephen Flynn. You can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls recorded as podcasts on Podbean, on Spotify, on iTunes, or anywhere where you download podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help me spread the word and send suggestions for guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, June 4th, 2020, there are 6,581,066 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 6,445,457 yesterday. 1,864,538 of those cases are in the United States, up from 1,841,629 yesterday. There are now a total of 107,765 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 106,696 yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story every day, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Democracy Was Her Religion. Activist who marched with Martin Luther King Jr. dies of COVID-19. This is an obituary that appeared uh, May 23rd in the Washington Post by Marissa Itay. As she sat in front of the television in June 1963, Anna Levine felt her blood boil. She watched from her home in Brooklyn, New York, as Democratic Governor George Wallace of Alabama stood in the doorway of the State University's auditorium to block two black students from entering. In that moment, she vowed to fight discrimination for the rest of her life. Two months later, Levine joined 250,000 people walking alongside Martin Luther King Jr. at the March on Washington to demand equal rights for African-Americans. Although her husband Seymour feared that she might get hurt if violence broke out, Levine felt it was worth the risk. She felt that she needed to contribute to the world, her daughter Robin Levine said. She wanted to know that her life made a difference. An intellectual firebrand who left her mark everywhere she went, Levine saw her lifelong quest for a more egalitarian society end on April 22nd when she died of COVID-19 in a Long Island nursing home. She was 91. Levine is among tens of thousands of Americans who have died of COVID-19 in nursing homes, where close quarters and an elderly population can make the illness particularly devastating. The Kaiser Family Foundation, a healthcare nonprofit, estimates that 42% of COVID-19 deaths in the United States have occurred at homes and other at nursing homes and other assisted living facilities. Social distancing requirements meant that only four people could attend Levine's funeral. Workers wore hazmat suits as they lowered Levine into the ground near her grandmother and namesake, Annie Frank, who died of the flu during another pandemic a century ago. Levine spent much of her career as a bookkeeper, but her true passion was advocacy. Through the state of New York, she worked on family court mediation, unemployment issues, and senior citizens' mental health. She also served on a task force of the Kupferberg Holocaust Center at Queensboro Community College and was active in the Queens County Democratic Party. 
After a childhood that culminated in an early graduation from high school, Levine wanted to go to college. Her parents, however, thought differently. Few young women at that time were encouraged to pursue higher education, and Levine's parents considered it unnecessary. Instead, she worked as a bookkeeper at a New York City jewelry store and exchanged letters with her then-boyfriend Seymour while he served in the Army during World War II. She married him in 1949, and they raised daughters Robin and Sharon to understand that the world was a big place and that they were not at the center of it. As her girls grew up, Levine encouraged them to write to Helen Keller and Eleanor Roosevelt. She took them to historically black churches so they could learn how other people worshipped. She was, as Sharon later put it, a force of nature. Levine was also determined to do what she wanted. After a divorce and 14 years of studying at Queens College, she got the bachelor's degree that she yearned for. In her 50s, she decided that she still wasn't fulfilled and needed to study public interest law. Her enrollment in the City University of New York's law school surprised no one. Levine was known to carry around a pocket constitution and whip it out to support her arguments. If the constitution was the Bible, Sharon said the Supreme Court was the church and democracy was her religion. During a trip to Washington, D.C., to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, Sharon and her husband took Levine to the steps of the Supreme Court. The justices were deliberating the constitutionality of part of the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act, which codified the federal government's non-recognition of same-sex marriages. Protesters were demonstrating against the law. When Levine, then 84, and riding a mobility scooter, joined the rally, young activists crowded around her and chanted her name. The court eventually overturned Section 3 of DOMA and required the government to recognize legally married same-sex couples. Around her 80th birthday, Levine was invited to Hofstra University to watch a presidential debate between veteran Republican Senator John McCain and Senator Barack Obama, a freshman Democrat whose campaign had elevated him from relative obscurity. The night he won the election, Levine thought back to advocating for the rights of African Americans all those years ago. While celebrating on the phone with her daughters, she cried. I'd like to turn to the discussion for today and introduce my two guests. I'm really glad uh, to have both of them here together. I'm really thrilled by this. So let me introduce them. First, Dr. Stephen Flynn, the founding director of the Global Resilience Institute at Northeastern University, where he leads a major university-wide research initiative to inform and advance societal resilience in the face of growing human-made and naturally occurring turbulence. He is the author, among many things, of the textbook, Critical Infrastructure Resilience, Policy and Engineering Principles, came out just in 2018, and he's led teams in conducting post-disaster infrastructure resilience assessments. In 2014, Dr. Flynn was appointed by the Secretary of Homeland Security to serve as a member of the Homeland Security Science and Technology Advisory Council. He's a graduate of the United States Coast Guard Academy, and he served as active duty in the Coast Guard for 20 years, including two tours as commanding officer at sea. My second guest, Arnold M. Howitt, is the co-director of the Program on Crisis Leadership at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, where he has taught since 1976. He is also the Johnson & Johnson Chair Professor of Leadership at Schwarzman College, Tsinghua University in Beijing, China. Dr. Howitt studies emergency preparedness, crisis management, and disaster recovery issues in the United States and other countries, including China, Japan, where I met him, France, Nepal, Indonesia, South Korea, and Singapore. For two decades, Dr. Howitt has worked extensively on crisis management, executive education for senior government officials from the United States and other countries. And among other writings, Dr. Howitt is co-author and editor of several books, including Public Health Preparedness, 
Natural Disaster Management in the Asia-Pacific, Managing Crises and Countering Terrorism. Arne and Steve, welcome to both of you to COVID Calls. Thanks very much, Scott. Delighted to be with you. So I'd like to remind people you can get your questions in to the YouTube live chat. Just put them there or you can put them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag me at US of Disaster or you can email them to me. Some people would like to do that. Uh, my email is sgk23 at drexel.edu. So I start these calls just by finding out where people are calling in from and how they're doing. So, Steve, let me start with you. Where are you calling in from today and what's the situation with COVID-19 there today? I'm actually in Old Lyme, Connecticut, my home, uh, where I've been for the longest period of time since uh, uh, maybe 25 years because uh, uh, you know, I stopped traveling on March 13th uh, when I came back from Washington, D.C. And uh, have, it's a small town of just about 8,000 people. Um, we have uh, a, a few cases here, I think about 24. Um, it's uh, obviously Connecticut, though, was pretty hard to hit, um, more towards the southwestern part of the state, Fairfield County, but uh, it has found its way, as it has everywhere. And so uh, this, the area's been in a shelter in place and just beginning to uh, reopen uh, starting last week. Arne, what about you? Uh, I'm calling in from uh, Belmont, Massachusetts, just outside of uh, Boston. Uh, and uh, as you know, uh, the Massachusetts and particularly the Boston metro area has had a, a bad siege of COVID-19, uh, especially at the time, roughly the same time that New York was experiencing its surge. Uh, we've been on a declining uh, uh, path for a while now. Um, and uh, although not every single indicator is positive, uh, meaning good, not positive uh, COVID-19, uh, but definitely improving generally, uh, the state has uh, entered phase one of a multi-phase uh, restart uh, as of uh, the last week or so and is considering moving to phase two uh, possibly next week. Both of you, I know, travel a lot. In fact, I don't think I've ever met either one of you in the place where you work. I always encounter you in other places. So I don't think we've met Scott in the United States. Maybe that's true. <laughs> that's true. So, I mean, Steve, you pointed to this a second ago. It's really quite something to be to be managing so much, to be spending so much time stateside and even at home there. Has that been jarring to you as a researcher, Steve? Uh you know, I, I think thank God the technology is here. It's certainly been a lot to adapt to, but we, uh, when days start very early, they seem to go in very late. Uh, it's mainly in front of screens, uh, but to an extraordinary extent, the work continues. And this is a moment where uh, the resilience imperative is clearly um, very much in the forefront. So it's been a very, very busy time for, for me and my team which has all been connected, you know, via, via the tools that we have here today to accomplish our mission. Steve, um, let, let me take this opportunity to um, ask you, first of all, I know you've got some resources and I actually shared those on Twitter, um, resilienced.org. You've got a, a couple of classes, online classes here, COVID-19, how to be safe and resilient and COVID-19, a practical approach to enterprise restart and recovery planning. Boy, um, if that hasn't been taking up time in higher ed right now, I don't know what has. So can you talk us through about, a little bit about these resources? Yeah, the actually origin of the uh, the first uh, resource, how to be safe and resilient, 
you know, it's basically an online 30 minute or so uh, course to give people the very practical information they need for how to be safe, how to keep their family safe, and ideally how to keep safe in their neighborhoods. Uh, now, with that information, happily is becoming more widely known, though I'm afraid increasingly not well practiced. Uh, but what animated was I was in Washington, D.C. and found that there was no plan for public service uh, messaging uh, beyond what uh, CDC was putting on its website in mid-March. And I came back to my university and said, we got to do something. People are being told a lot about what they should be doing, but they're not told how to do it. You know, they're not told how to make themselves safe. So that was what animated that. And then we were thinking uh, after we got that basic life-saving, we think information out, we uh, turned to realize, hey, we shut the economy down. Uh, businesses, many of them, went completely dark and in terms of restaurants and retail and so forth. Others obviously shifted mode, but they would they both need to restart and restore. And most businesses don't have uh, continuity plans. Uh, large corporations have these, so they don't even have a framework to start from. So we thought it was important to provide a primer um, that would help businesses, small organizations, medium-sized organizations. Here are all the things that you should be thinking about to successfully restart and restore your operations. So these are free online resources. And the effort here is that to make a contribution, all, all the expertise needs to come from the Center for Disease Control or government. Uh, we can put, we, and I think we have responsibility in the university to uh, do what we can to get people to be informed and feel empowered to do with the risks that they're facing. Mm -hmm. I know you both study leadership and crisis communication. It strikes me that this disaster has been, it's been, unique and instructive and, and terrible, and, and you'll learn many things from it, I'm sure, but the the shelter-in-place orders now, in retrospect, to me, seem relatively straightforward and simple compared to what's coming next in terms of how to, the, just to this point, Steve, you're making about how to think through these problems, what kind of data points should leaders be looking to um, to reopen, because it's, I, I think, and Steve, let me get your perspective on this first, and then you are um, leaders of large institutions like universities or big corporations are struggling with this, but also medium size and smaller uh, family-run businesses are going to have to make these decisions too, just because the state in Pennsylvania, where I teach, for example, we're waiting um, for the signal to go from red to yellow for higher education. But just because that happens, that doesn't mean Drexel has to reopen its doors. It means that's an opportunity and an option. Steve, talk us through a little bit about how you're thinking about this in terms of what kind of information those leaders need? Well, I, I think it's first, you know, this is a little bit of an I told you so, but it is that you really do want to plan in your emergency management, side, not just your response, but what is recovery look like? There's been a lot and was a lot of pandemic planning, but virtually nobody had planned through, okay, if we have an outbreak and we do a shelter in place, the kill switch is relatively straightforward. They sort of shut everything down. But what does restart look like? How do you restore confidence? And, and when you have obviously a mix of risk, risk across different population groups, how do you guide that process? So, you know, we ask people to think through those issues. Uh, some people are more at risk than others. So what is your approach going to be for dealing with an elderly population or those with other high risk factors? Uh, there's... Uh, issues of employees, you know, right now there's virtually no function in child care centers. 
and schools are closed, camps are closed. So when you think about young workers or, or workers with families, you know, what's the plan? How are you going to work your way through that? So it really is asking people to get to think outside your direct walls of your organization business, put yourselves in the shoes of your employees or your customers and think through what are the things that they're going to need to be able to, uh, to have some reassurance, basically deal with the risks they're going to face, uh, but to do it in a way that they feel like they can manage that risk and that you're being responsible. Arne, the same question to you. I mean, your, your colleagues there at the Kennedy School, you've been characteristically prolific in this time. I see a few publications already out sort of in this area around crisis leadership for um, crisis communication for leaders during COVID-19. What's your... What's your take on what Steve's saying and your own, your own angle on this? I agree completely with Steve. I think uh, the difficulty is that very few organizations did that kind of planning ahead of time, and therefore uh, they're making it up as we go along. And I think we're suffering a lot from the fact uh, that I believe Steve mentioned earlier, although I was offline for a couple of minutes while I was trying to get the audio to work, so I'm not certain I heard what Steve said. Um, but I understood him uh, uh, to be saying that the um, uh, quality of information that's been coming, particularly from the federal government, has been very poor. And uh, I think, you know, we have a cacophony of voices. Uh, we have had a long-standing campaign to discredit many sources of expertise and many sources of communication. And the result of that, I think, is that many citizens don't know whom to believe. Um, I know from uh, people in Texas, for example, uh, that there's a lot of uh, uh, conflict in the Austin area, at least, uh, over whether wearing a, uh, a mask is a political statement or not, and that uh, people who do wear masks are mocked and uh, uh, even attacked. Uh, and so I think that uh, to the extent that that's a widespread set of feelings, um, even in my own area, which I think does not share quite that degree of animosity for people who wear masks, uh, the use of masks is not uh, uh, certainly not universal. Uh, and many people are not using them. So I think we have, you know, some genuine problems. And uh, a lot of that, I think, stems from the fact that we're not getting consistent messaging about it. Uh, Steve also raises, I think, some crucial points about the fact that that messaging is not uh, along a single channel with a single audience, that there is, in fact, a highly segmented audience depending on um, mm -hmm. health and age uh, and a variety of other kinds of demographic uh, and personal variables. Uh, and uh, that also is extremely difficult to communicate, uh, uh, especially where you're asking people to behave in somewhat different ways. I think we've been somewhat more successful in th uh, after a very bad start. We've been somewhat more, somewhat more successful in communicating about the risks to people over age 65 or roughly that age. Uh, but I think in other terms, we haven't been anywhere near as uh, effective. Let me stay with this communication issue for a second. I mean, I know, I don't think there'll be any disagreement, um, even across party lines, that the, the messaging from the White House has been poor um, and inconsistent. 
But I've wondered also, I mean, it's not enough and no after action report that says blame it on the Trump administration is going to be acceptable. I mean, I think there's other issues here. And I wonder, get your perspectives on this. Is this the difficult nature of, of crisis communication in a pandemic? There's something unique about a, about a health disaster. Is it, is it also somehow we're seeing a more mature um, representation of our wildly diverse information ecosystem and our many different media channels that finally it's the dissolution of network networks as the way people get their information. I'm just fascinated by what kinds of communication problems seem to be converging here with this. Arne, can you take that first? Yeah, I, I would say that you're right on, on both of those points, that first of all, the incredible diversity of communications uh, media and the lack of gatekeepers for a large number of them that uh, increasingly people are depending on, uh, uh, particularly social media sources, but not least uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, cable news channels and other uh, specialized uh, mass media, uh, that the uh, that diversity of voices, which is not necessarily are not necessarily agreeing with each other, makes it hard for people uh, to deal with it. But I think you're also on target in talking about this as something that that a, uh, an epidemic is somewhat different from what uh, we've seen in other settings. If you think, say, about a hurricane or an earthquake, uh, a flooding, the geographic area that is affected is is limited. Uh, the audience uh, is uh, uh, also uh, much more easily targeted. Uh, and uh, so th this crisis obviously involves everybody and, and therefore the reach of communications has to be much broader. I think a second issue uh, that is very distinctive is that an epidemic is long lived and uh, at least the crucial crisis uh, messaging for, uh, say, uh, a hurricane, um, unless it's something uh, as destructive as uh, Hurricane Maria in uh, Puerto Rico in, in 2017, uh, the difficulties are starting to be ameliorated after uh, a few days or a week. Uh, people's attention starts to stray a bit. Uh, the people who do need to be in touch are much more likely to be paying attention. Uh, whereas I think here we have fatigue in thinking about this, and uh, particularly for a disease that doesn't strike everyone, uh, that uh, for many people who contract it is fairly mild, um, and where you can uh, be afflicted and yet not even know that you have it, uh, that it makes very difficult uh, the task of getting the attention of people and getting them to treat it seriously. I, I, I think we, uh, I, I agree with everything that Arne has laid out here. Uh, I also think there was sort of a, a more fundamental uh, misstep here in the immediate aftermath of the event, very similar actually to what happened after 9-11, in that, as we recall, with the 9-11, essentially what the government's position were, for the general population, your job is to shop and travel while we make you safe. And it was basically, in that case, shop and travel. In this case, it was Lazio messaging, which is the, the public health and uh, officialdom will take care of this COVID-19. For you, the general population, are healthy. Your job is to, the inverse, not shop and travel, to stay home. And that was it. There wasn't any other messaging going to the overwhelming majority of Americans 
what they should be doing. We literally have them trapped in their homes. What we should have been starting is, is that education process, also giving people things to do. And they have to be very specific. There is a lot of people who are vulnerable who will need help. Here are the things that you can do to help that process. Here's how you stay in touch and engage with elderly uh, population who can't uh, be out and about. You know, increased connectivity, the very term of social distancing, you, you know, was very much, many people were reading that as lock yourself up, when in fact we really needed to accelerate social connectedness. But we mm -hmm. just had to use different mechanisms. So understandably, virtually all the bandwidth overwhelming, overwhelmed the local, state, and federal officials around dealing with the sick and the risk of the sick, uh, and there wasn't much left over to engage the general population. But here we have a, a crisis going to impact all of us, as Arne said, is of an uncertain duration, and we have to treat it as a marathon, not as a sprint, and thinking through communications. One just very uh, small piece really is language and cultural uh, course as well with the diverse population. We, we put out our initial uh, course on how to be safe and resilient uh, in English and then in Spanish, but then recognized there was a substantial Haitian community uh, who are many who would be as essential workers, but we saw a very high incidence in the metro Boston area. And so we're now in the process of, of turning, you know, of, of translating that into Creole. Um, because you have to get the message into these, to the different tailored audiences here. And the challenge is doing it in a culturally appropriate way as well. So really big lift, but as much as we were, you know, and didn't do that well, planning for the medical response there is an equal imperative as we're learning here in the pandemic is to manage the public communications response, the need for consistency, but also tailoring. And, and this was never really set as a formal objective. And we've got this haphazard sort of effort to get at it. And I think that's contributed to the cacophony, the sense of nobody knows what they're doing. I agree with what uh, Steve is saying, but I want to make two small qualifications. One is that uh, the problem of uh, cultural and language communication is, is perhaps even more complicated than he stated because Creole, Spanish, and English are not the only languages that need to be communicated. And I know you weren't asserting that, uh, but in uh, many metropolitan areas, there are literally dozens of linguistic groups. In New York City, I believe well over 100 uh, different language groups. Uh, so in one of the places that was a hot spot, probably the worst hot spot for COVID, uh, the task of communication was incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. The other qualification I'd make is just uh, really to recognize that uh, we're a bit of Monday morning quarterbacks here in the sense that we're looking back over several months and pointing out some of the wish we'd done those things. Uh, and I, I believe that we are understating the difficulty that people had uh, of doing what uh, we disaster uh, students think of as sense-making or achieving situational awareness. And even today, there's still a lot of uncertainties about uh, the behavior and nature of this disease. For example, do uh, is it the case that having had it confers immunity? And how long does that immunity last? Um, and if we go back a few months uh, into uh, late February or early March, the number of unknowns uh, were even greater. Uh, we didn't really had we hadn't really nailed down whether um, the uh, 
people could be uh, contagious when they were asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. Uh, we didn't know, um, we weren't even certain about uh, whether there was person-to-person uh, infection that was occurring, although many people were pretty sure of it by February, but they still were nailing that down. And so the task of communication was uh, very, very difficult uh, uh, because of that uncertainty that surrounded it. And I think that that uh, in, in studying both um, uh, SARS in China and several other uh, in Canada, uh, and also the H1N1 epidemic uh, in both China and the United States. Uh, one of the things that uh, came through there is the the great, dif- which is being repeated here, is the enormous difficulty of uh, communication uh, that occurs when there is developing understanding of what the nature of the threat is. Um, and I think that communication problem is even more complicated than we've uh, suggested in one other dimension, which is that the constituencies for information are quite varied. Um, so one at one level, you need to com- communicate with um, uh, clinicians, physicians, and other specialists who have to deal with it. Then you have to deal with the uh, sub-professionals and paraprofessionals uh, like nurses and technicians uh, and uh, EMS people. And then finally, you have to put out information for the general public and segment that general public in all the ways that we've talked about. And so even when you know what the message is that you want to get out, um, figuring out how to present it in uh, ways that uh, are appropriate for each of these constituencies can be quite complicated. people you're listening to COVID calls my guests today Arne Howitt and Steve Flynn disaster preparedness experts and researchers and um, Steve both of you have talked about uh, the uniqueness of this disaster in, in problems of sense making but and also in related to time and the way that the disaster is unfolding and presenting different problems as it goes and I know you've been working with FEMA on that right I mean it, this has been, I don't think we've, in my lifetime, have not seen all 50 states' emergency operations activated simultaneously. Maybe during 9-11 that was for a short time. I don't think so. But be that as it may, I'd like to know what your work has consisted of with them. And they've been doing response and recovery operations simultaneously. That's new, right? Yeah. And this is in FEMA Region 1 for the New England region. Um, so... One of the dialogues we had early on with the regional administrator, Russ Webster, is you know you really had two concurrent crises at the same time, and particularly for the most vulnerable population. One, of course, is the public health uh, uh, and risk of of infection from SARS-CoV-2 that could turn into COVID-19, and obviously, virtually every attention was uh, focused on that, and that created the second crisis, which was. Uh, with the shelter in place, which was essentially an ec- bringing our economic uh, um, economy to its needs, and all of the ripple effects that that's had. Traditionally, under the national disasters sort of framework, we have FEMA approaches this when we think about a hurricane or an earthquake. 
there is a like 90 day or so period of response. And then if it's really bad, they go, okay, we have to figure out how we recover this place that's been severely impacted. Uniquely in this case, FEMA Region 1 started the recovery planning concurrent with the response, which is of course still ongoing. And why that is so very important is it's allowing the identification of assistance that can be mobilized as well as authorities that can be used to bring assistance where it's needed, uh, whether where uh, we have vulnerable populations disrupted uh, lives on so many levels. And when we approach this in, in a rather, I think, unique way, we're working with each of the six New England states. They've essentially identified, we asked them to identify three representative communities. We've gone into those communities and talked to their stakeholders uh, at the public official, local official level, the private sector and nonprofits to essentially get a sense of where are they, what are they experiencing now, and what they expect they'll be facing going forward. So we know that there will be a lag between then and assistance arriving. And this is helping to inform already a number of interagency efforts at the federal side to organize where they can bring assistance to bear. And uh, I think it's a model that could be replicated across the 10 FEMA regions across the entire country, uh, but we're getting started here now. But this is so key to think holistically about how we manage disasters, especially one of such a long duration as this one, instead of our almost traditional prevent, protect, respond, recover in this very sort of sequential way. Very, very important. The last piece I'll highlight is the partners we have for the economic, for economic recovery focus is the economic and community development parts of local and state government. And this is so very important because they actually understand where the community was before and its economic development goals. Therefore, how would we bounce forward, not just bounce back? And so, it, and while the emergency managers continue to focus on the response-related issues, like getting PPE and ventilators and testing and other kinds of issues, so we're drawing a more capacity of government to take this thing on. And the skill set of dealing with more than one crisis at the same time is something we've got to really uh, up our game on. And this is uh, this this particular disaster is really helping to be. Yeah, we've been focused. I think Steve's point is very well taken about uh, thinking about multiple crises or concurrent crises. And we've so far been talking mainly about uh, the COVID uh, crisis, cum economic crisis that has resulted from the shelter in place. I think we want to add to that the fact that we still have many of the kinds of uh, dangers that and risks that uh, have existed before. Uh, I know that a, a number of people uh, in government uh, are beginning to worry about the start around June 1st of both the uh, hurricane season in the southeast and the uh, wildfire season in the west. Uh, none of those exclusive exactly to those areas. Uh, the potential for uh, flooding. Uh, and uh, I participated uh, earlier this week in a call-in for the National Governors Association uh, that Craig Fugate was on and several people from Iowa and, uh, and Oregon. And uh, when we started planning that about two weeks ago, no, and we're explicitly focusing on uh, concurrent crises, uh, it never occurred to anybody that I'm aware of that civil disorder, massive civil disorder spread not not just in one place, but all over the country. Uh, the management both of protest and, and violent reactions uh, to the tragic death of uh, George Floyd, that um, we didn't anticipate that that might 
be one of the concur possible concurrent crises. Um, hopefully that will be uh, uh, abating very soon, but we still face the problems of dealing with some of these things. Uh, Craig Fugate pointed out some of the uh, complications that are created, for example, uh, in hurricane season or for wildfires in terms of evacuation, of sheltering, of managing the uh, thousands of responders that are involved in any kind of large-scale natural disaster, uh, and that uh, many of those things are hugely complicated by the need for social distancing and other practices that will protect people from uh, COVID-19 and prevent um, another uh, surge or outbreak. Um, so I think that, that uh, that's very definitely uh, something that we have to think about. A second thing that I think we might want to talk about uh, that uh, that uh, Steve uh, touched on is the fact that many of the things that we're doing uh, in response to this crisis are essentially experiments. And the um, you know the, we were faced by conditions that we didn't fully understand and still don't fully understand. We were uh, inventing things as we went along, uh, and the process of of being fairly systematic about evaluating what those are. And I don't mean that in terms of a of either a policy analyst or an academics uh, form of evaluation, but the on the fly kind of evaluation, correction and adaptation that uh, decision makers have to make uh, and that uh, organizations responsible for carrying out various measures have to adapt to. Uh, that kind of experimentation, learning, uh, and application of our lessons has been uh, a very complicated one. And I think the communication problems that we cited early on um, have to some extent interfered with our being able uh, not only to understand what lessons are out there, but to communicate that more broadly so that people in different states don't have to reinvent the wheel, but in fact can benefit from what is being learned by people elsewhere. I wanna, I wanna stay with that. I, and First, I just want to point out, I talked with Max Moritz yesterday. I don't know if you, either of you have met Max. He runs a fire ecology lab out in California in Santa Barbara. He's really leading fire ecologist. And we were talking about this problem with the compound. We've been talking about compound disasters all week. And, um, you know, he pointed out that sort of even the usage of terms like shelter, you know, that in, in wildfire evacuation is preferable and sheltering. Um, is something that sometimes people who are a little bit renegade, who don't want to follow uh, what the emergency managers are telling them, they say, no, I'm going to stay home and ride it out. So sheltering is a, is a particular sort of subset of the choices that a population will make. And it's the inverse of people who've been going out, and you've both been talking about, you know, walking up, going outside without the mask. So even just the terminology we use sometimes um, gets us into a little bit of trouble when we talk about um, how people, you know, this messaging to people individually. I want to, though, there's something here I want to I want to get to. This has been coming up a lot in emergency management, the people I read and follow right now. It's a very hard job at every level. And it seems like there's a kind of a myth out there about the way emergency management works. The plans are made, the brainstorming happens, worst cases are tabulated, Funds are allocated, plans are made, and then we run the plan. And in this disaster, there are two things both of you have touched on. 
One is the problem of just surveillance and sense-making in the midst of the disaster and then being able to adapt. Steve, you talked about regional planning and regional coordination. Um, and that, so that's one facet of it. The other is the need for extraordinary attention to vulnerable populations, which to me, it, it does expose potentially a, a quite complicated set of conversations within which we explore what emergency management should be doing or can be doing. Our emergency managers, for example, should their task really be to focus on what ultimately may be a small percentage of the population? but those who have the most important, most difficult needs in the midst of the disaster. I think that hasn't, up until more recent times, to my mind, been the mainstream of what emergency management is. But I see big shifts happening right now. I, and it could just be my interpretation, but I feel like there's a lot of stress points here for what we've been calling emergency management. What, would you be specific about what the shift is that you see, Scott? Um, the shift seems to be that it's no longer controversial at all to talk about care and plans for vulnerable populations actually becoming perhaps even the mainstream of what emergency managers should be focused on. And the other is some awareness that you're going to have to improvise in the middle of the disaster. I think that's probably always been the case, but acknowledging that it's the case and even perhaps celebrating that kind of thing in the midst of it um, seems to run contrary to the way oftentimes people think about emergency management. So it, these are just a couple of the things that have come up in talking with other guests. And I guess I'd like to get both of your takes on what kind of shifts you may be seeing in the profession itself right now, or the way that emergency management might come through this pandemic, what kind of changes you might see on the other side. Well, I'll comment on both of the points that you raised on the, on the issue of, um, of, uh, uh, adapting and changing and improvising during a crisis. I think that always has been part of what emergency management has to deal with. Uh, but I but I also think that you're correct in saying that at least in some places in the profession, the emphasis has been on making plans in advance. Um, and I believe it was President Eisenhower when he was General Eisenhower who said something along the lines that plans are nothing but planning is everything. And I think that pinpoints the uh, some of the aspects of preparation that are critical, which is uh, forming relationships with other people, developing systems like uh, incident management that uh, people can practice ahead of time that allows them to do uh, on the fly uh, uh, reaction to conditions that they might not have anticipated, uh, having drills that uh, help people develop skills, etc., uh, but not necessarily depending on the fact that uh, that you're able to um, predict exactly the conditions that you're going to face. Um, my research colleague, uh, Professor Dutch Leonard, and I have emphasized in our own writing the fact that crises are different uh, because they involve substantial amounts of novelty, things that we haven't seen before and that don't fit into our plans. Um, and indeed, sometimes our plans are even counterproductive given the situations that we face, and therefore the need to prepare ourselves to be um, agile and adaptive and to improvise, uh, not necessarily because we've prepared exactly for those things, but because uh, we've practiced on hard problems, talked to each other, uh, 
developed relationships with the people we're most likely to work with, uh, even though we don't do that on a daily basis with those same people, say emergency managers on the one hand and public health people on the other. Um, and uh, even for the people that we may not have worked with before or even had the opportunity to exercise with before, having systems like incident management that allow us to fit together uh, uh, and couple on to each other effectively, even though we haven't had that prior uh, development. And I think that that is definitely something that is where the profession is moving and the NIMS system is clearly trying to help us get ready for that. And the fact that many jurisdictions are doing it more than just a paper basis or something that they practice once a year and don't really believe in, the fact that that is starting to disappear, I think is important. On your second point about um, uh, responding to vulnerable populations. Um, I think this crisis, uh, in some ways like Hurricane Katrina did, uh, is uh, emphasizing and um, making very visible the fact that emergencies of various sorts are much harder on people uh, who lack resources, who uh, are suffering from various kinds of inequalities, whether it's income or racial uh, or uh, health issues or whatever and that uh, the special problems that are generated for those people are, are tremendous. In Hurricane Katrina, uh, about 90% of the population of New Orleans was able to evacuate by either by using public transportation or uh, automobiles, et cetera. And it was the 10% of people who were institutionalized, didn't own a car, were uh, too old or sick to drive for long distances, et cetera, that were the most vulnerable and suffered horrendously uh, in Katrina. And we're seeing something of the same thing today. Um, and so I think it's quite appropriate that uh, emergency management begin to worry about uh, even more than it has historically, which it has worried about, uh, about those vulnerable populations. I guess I would disagree that that is you know, should be the main focus of, of emergency management because we do need to worry about the rest of the population that uh, can't be left to its own devices to imagine how it should respond, especially in the face of a frightening uh, emergency that, uh, that they might not have prepared for at all. So balance in that regard is, is certainly critical and we can't give up on that. Uh, but I do think that, that recognizing the horrendous inequalities that get exaggerated by these crises is very, very important. Steve, can I get your, your sense of this, how the profession might be changing as we're literally in real time? I'm not sure I can entirely separate how I think it needs to change from how it may be changing. I, may be I was hoping you would say something like that. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think first we need to recognize that if you look at most of the faces of emergency management, there's a diversity problem. Um, it's still very, it's very male, it's very white male. Some of it comes from the past that lead those into emergency management coming out of firefighting or the military or law enforcement. So if that continues to be so a core issue is the need for democratizing emergency management to a far greater degree. And what I mean by that is that it's much more about how I enable the broader civil society, including and very much focus on vulnerable communities as well, as much in the process of the planning and certainly in the recovery that comes from it. The response almost always requires life safety skills that we can expect a lot of the public to have, but many cases need to have in large scale events because there's just not enough professionals to go around. And so 
a core challenge I find for the emergency management community really is how to get how to essentially identify the parts of their job that should be shared widely within civil society. You know, really up the game in uh, uh, across us uh, across civil society and across the diverse groups. So there's greater degree of self-sufficiency where we can get it, and where we also uh, mobilize and able to tap neighbor helping neighbor to a far greater extent to help support that vulnerable population. Piece. So there's, there's, I think there's been a narrowness often emergency management. The folks that sort of break class in time of emergency, they come out and do their magic. What we know is that this magic needs to be an ongoing, organic part of how we live our lives. And it's going to up its tempo more. And this pandemic is really just drawing that through in a bit more exaggerated way. Steve, I just want to stay with you for a second because I think you do have um, a, a good window on this. It has been confusing, and others have asked me. I haven't really been able to answer. How do we explain, so far as you see it right now, what happened going from um, HHS really leading on this disaster from January and February into the transition into FEMA? I mean, our emergency management system is it's complicated as it is, but I... You know, that transition is still a little bit difficult for me to fully understand. And then should we anticipate that FEMA is going to hand back over um, lead in this in this disaster or has that already happened? Can you just walk us through that a little bit? I, I think this is very much a working prog uh, progress, but I understand, I think, what the thinking is. And it really is coming out of the end of the Obama administration, which is any large scale disaster requires essentially a herding of the cats, basically bringing the alphabet soup of federal agencies there to deal with uh, the crises. And very limited, there were very few crises that just fit into one single cabinet or agency's responsibilities. And so while it seems to make sense to have uh, you know, HHS in the lead, and in a better probably state of, of HHS and capabilities, they probably could have continued to do that job well, we were always gonna reach a point where this crisis was going to involve you know, multiple agencies. And under those circumstances, you need a coordinator. And I think FEMA is evolving this role. Again, it's a maturing process. But I've seen it working well in, uh, in the New England region, in FEMA Region 1, where it's coordinating amongst the federal agencies. It's also a point where the states can go to to be able to say, hey, we have these needs. And then the FEMA can play this traffic offer, clearinghouse kind of role. Now, there's not near enough capacity to do this well as it needs to be done, but I think that function in FEMA is not a misplaced one. It has to be somewhere, um, and, and the nature of this particular crisis expanding well beyond a public health crisis, I think, is uh, what led you know, you know, to that whole happening. I want to remind people you're listening to COVID calls. We have just a few minutes left here. It's not too late to get a question in. If you want to, get it into YouTube Live, and we'll take that question right away. This is my last question to both of you. Um, it is an election year, and disasters um, and politics are not disentangled. Um, and I, so I wonder a little bit as we particularly move through the summer and into the fall, predictions of a sort of second wave of the pandemic. Of course, what's happening on the streets of America right now is also volatile and hard to predict where that will go. Um, I guess my, my general, I guess I have one specific question is, do you think there will be a move 
as we get close to the conventions and, and then into the fall to do what happened after 9-11 and after Katrina, which will be some congressional-led um, investigations here, um, which I know are about fact-finding, but frankly, they're also sometimes about political messaging and score settling even sometimes. And, and I guess connected with that, I sort of wonder like how you think the politics of this moment will fold into the what the very real need for just strong, good crisis management as we move into the fall. Arn, what do you think about? Well, James Lee Witt said a long time ago that uh, something along the lines that uh, all disasters are political events as well as physical events or or health events, and that certainly is correct. Uh, and it's true for a lot of reasons, because uh, not least because uh, political leaders are going to be evaluated by the electorate as to how they did. Uh, I think for sure this will be a political issue, and uh, I think that uh, uh, it, it's very likely to be part of the presidential campaign, and I think it, it will become a partisan issue with uh, Democrats attacking Republicans uh, and Republicans attacking Democratic governors, as the president has started to do. So I don't think there's any getting away from that. Uh, it certainly would be salutary to have congressional investigations of this done uh, reasonably openly. Um, given the division and control of the two houses of Congress, I think we're going to wind up with very different pictures that will come out of those investigations. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think they'll be quite useful. Uh, the um, the uh, congressional reviews that went on after Hurricane Katrina produced some very good uh, improvements in the emergency management system, and hopefully that will happen again. Uh, you know, this is something that you've studied a lot better than I think anybody else, uh, Scott, and, uh, you know, in terms of post-disaster uh, investigations and uh, the impact that it has on, uh, on uh, change. Uh, but I think I think that we can certainly expect that to happen. Uh, and uh, like everything else in our system, it's uh, certainly these days, it's going to be uh, at least in part and perhaps in large part uh, partisan. It's a pretty fascinating idea that the House of Representatives is going to maybe come to one set of conclusions and the Senate will come to another in their investigations. As I recall, Steve, after Katrina, the only agency that came out looking good was the Coast Guard. Um, but what do you just, we're, we're in our closing moments here, but I wonder, you know, to anything Arn has said or anything else you want to circle back in a conversation, but how are the politics going to fold in here? Well, what, what I would say, you know, this again is a unique disaster. It's unfolding. We're almost certainly going to see a second wave. And, uh, that translates that we should be learning now because we need to inform how we do this again. And even if we, you know, we're muted the second wave, we hope that's the best scenario we're going to be faced with these pandemics again. So learning should be an automatic process versus being viewed as a partisan process. Now it will be, of course, a partisan process because the nature we're in. But we should be investigating right now because we need the knowledge set to up our game. Now, I, I don't see how this does not become something in the presidency. There's sort of two pieces here. The basic plot and tackling of managing this risk are not being well done. We don't have enough tests. We don't have enough supplies to do the test. We don't have enough lab work going on to execute on the test. We don't have enough PPE. We don't have enough ventilators. We don't have enough dialysis things for this thing to pick up. So we're going to continue to see the kind of keystone cop kind of response to this if these levels go up, and almost certainly they are going to go up as we open the economy. 
The second piece is we're, we're really, I think, in a false uh, uh, period here relative to the economic fallout of this. The, the, the impact on municipalities and states. Uh, you know, we were one of the communities we were looking at. Ninety percent of their budget is non-discretionary. Thirty percent of it comes from collecting fees and revenues, and from the state. We're going to reach a crisis here where virtually no community can provide basic operations and basic services. And then we're going to see the housing crisis that's going to impact here as we move into the fall. And New England is going to be colder. That's going to translate to heating oil. This is Great Depression-level stuff for our largest vulnerable population. A lot of affluent folks or middle class, upper middle class will ride this out fine. But the folks who are vulnerable are really, really going to be hurting when some of the band-aids that have been put on right now that were quickly put together, it doesn't seem like there's a following act for doing that. So as the pain threshold goes up, as the risk goes up, as we see a convergence, as we have a theme in our broadcast here, hurricanes added to wildfires, and we still see the stretching to the breaking point, uh, and probably it will be broken uh, in terms of some of the capabilities we have to deal with these issues, there should be a national conversation and accountability for the failure to adequately prepare for uh, these these events. Wow, uh, I mean, what you're both describing is a sense in which we we move from one disaster, the pandemic, into a series of sort of indistinguishable overlays, which are some of which we've talked about in terms of civil society and violence, and some of them having to do with the economic impact, and then these other more predictable, and yet still always uh, challenging seasonal disasters like fires. And hurricanes. I want to thank my guests today, Arne Howitt and Steve Flynn, for spending this hour uh, talking to me on COVID calls. And I always kind of say when I talk to disaster experts like you, I'm sorry that we have to meet under these circumstances, but I'm awfully glad that you're working and doing the work that you're doing. And I hope that I can get you both back at some point later in the fall to, to talk. I want to remind people also the COVID calls is on every day at five o'clock Eastern time. You can catch it on YouTube live and you can always catch it later uh, on SoundCloud or anywhere else where you listen to podcasts, just check out the COVID Calls podcast tomorrow at 5 o'clock. Rounding out this week, I have historian Margaret O'Mara who's going to talk to us about the high-tech sector and regulation and the pandemic. Thank you all for your time today. Steve and Arne, thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. A pleasure to be here. Okay, everybody, stay healthy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Take care.